Hey everybody, uh, GPS 220, um, working our way through clearing the planes. Um, just a few quick announcements, quiz this Friday, so be prepared for that. The quiz will cover basically the clearing the planes text. So uh, when we finish up on Wednesday, you should be prepared to talk about, or I guess answer questions about the text. Um, second question or second comment, uh, all the GPS 220 exams should be graded now. Uh, and you have your scores. I know there were a few little mistakes with folks, and so I'm going to go back and correct those um, uh, when I get a chance, but, but I will make those corrections. And one more, I feel like there's one more announcement. Maybe not. Okay, those are the main two. Quiz uh, coming up on Friday, and then uh, grades um, for GPS 220. Most of those at this point are now done. All right, we're getting close to the end. And again, moving chronologically, we have kind of followed the indigenous people of well, modern day Canada uh, from east to west, uh, starting pre-Columbian and working our way now through almost the 20th century. Um, and today's uh, chapters are, are, I think, particularly hard to read, um, given some of the malice with which um, the Canadian government and the American government at times uh, treated and acted uh, towards Indigenous people, but uh, I guess we'll get there when we get there today. Um, I've titled this lecture, On to the Reserves. Uh, the word reserve that's used in this text is essentially what we'd understand to be a reservation um, in the American context. So a reservation was a, a, tr a tribal community that was carved out typically by governmental authorities. Uh, in other words, the reservation was not um, the creation of indigenous people themselves, but instead uh, some sort of negotiation or treaty uh, that was aimed at the native people from the, in this case, Canadian government, the Dominion government, as they're called. And we know, of course, the United States, that there are reservations as well. And these reservations, uh, the same kind of thing, treaties, negotiations, and in some cases, just enforcement of measures to move um, native people. So the most famous example of kind of moving people from one place to the next in the American context is the Trail of Tears, um, which affected uh, hundreds of thousands of Cherokee um, from the Carolinas, Tennessee, Virginia, um, who were pushed to modern day Oklahoma. Uh, I wanted to read this quote out of the, uh, I think it's chapter eight, this quote comes from, I just want to read it because I think it puts us in a good mindset for what we're exploring today. I want no government medicine. What I want is medicine that walks. Send three oxen to be killed and give fresh meat to my people and they will get better. When we started this book, we talked about how there was not a significant knowledge of, of health and well-being, let's say. Um, but maybe we were wrong about that. All right. Maybe we don't have an understanding of, of health and well-being from a more modern context where we, you know, take medicine when we're when we're sick. Um, or we have certain, you know, kind of wellness activities that we do uh, to get our bodies right. But perhaps indigenous people knew all along what kept people uh, healthy. And this quote is emblematic of that. I want no government medicine. So here they're talking about, you know, any potential cures for any diseases that might exist. All right. But what is really being said here is that th these cures are not going to cure the core disease that's, that's taken root. And that is that the way indigenous people had lived their lives for thousands of years, if not hundreds of years, um, is no more. 
What I want is medicine that walks. Send three oxen to be killed and give fresh meat to my people and they will get better. You know, a big story from this text is that disease is compounded by other factors, environmental factors, climatic factors, but also um, uh, resource factors. So malnutrition, people can't eat because they don't have access to the resources they need to sustain their lives. This is going to cripple an immune system. All right. Now, indigenous people aren't speaking in those terms about immune systems, but they, they understand that someone that is quote unquote healthy is someone that can eat the things that they need to survive and not have to depend on um, a other people for that food or b you know, food that is not worthy uh, of that, because then this will uh, exacerbate the problem. Right. So let's get into it from freedom and autonomy to dependence. Uh, probably the most heartbreaking thing. One of the one of the most heartbreaking things that comes out of these two chapters is really what the story of the move to the reserves did to the indigenous spirit. Um, you know, you think about this pre-Columbian, we have indigenous people who are, who are able basically to live the lives that they want to live. Now, of course, there's conflict, there's disease. We don't want to make this out to be a utopia that didn't exist. Uh, there's, there's warring factions among uh, uh, tribes, pre-Columbian. But people had autonomy. Um, if they exhausted the resources in one place, they had the ability to move uh, freely to another place. If the soil was bad, they could pick up and, you know, and so they had created a lifestyle for themselves that enabled the population to thrive um, as best we can understand, you know, thriving in uh, a pre, you know, 20th, 21st century uh, way, way of living. But the story of this move to the reserves takes away this freedom and autonomy, um, and it makes uh, indigenous populations dependent. Uh, and it's not a dependence of their of their choosing. Uh, this is a dependence that's that's wrought by disease. It's wrought by malnutrition. It's wrought by environmental disaster. It's wrought by, you know, not having access to sustainable goods any longer. And the Canadian government, what the chapters sometimes refer to as the Dominion, enforces these policies of dependence essentially. So you know, you go from bison, one of the most majestic creatures on earth, to soup kitchens. You know, you go from hunting and fishing and trapping as a way to subsist, to survive, to not having those things available to you. There are no more beaver. The bison are all but extinct. Now you're having to depend on a soup kitchen. Um, this is a, a major, major turn of events and, you know, in the period of about three, 300 years. How did starvation happen? Um, starvation happens uh, several ways, but the, the most basic way it happened is the extinction of food sources. All right. Streams that were overfished, bison that disappeared, beavers that were no longer, um, moving into, to climates that were not suitable for, for raising, um, particular produce or particular goods. The ch these chapters talk about the long black winter where it was very, very hard to grow anything. And so there's just no opportunity for food, no food, no eat, uh, no eat, malnutrition. All right, pretty straightforward. Um, new species, cattle, uh, bring disease and they exhaust the land. So one of the big uh, themes of this uh, particular chapter is the, the way that cattle coming from south to north had changed the way people thought about, you know, food, uh, you know, were cattle to be the replacement for the bison, uh, regardless, these cattle brought with them disease that would infect populations and kill them. And on top of that, in order to have cattle, you need space that you may or may not have in a long drought uh, or in a long black winter. 
as it were. Indigenous people resorted to eating dogs, horses, shoes. Oftentimes the food that they ate might have been spoiled. Food provided by the government like bacon was spoiled. Uh, and when they ate their own horses, their horses were infected. And so this poisoned the indigenous population. So what we have here are these compounding effects, these things that started out very um, slowly, but surely over time, over 300, 350, 400 years would go to wipe out this indigenous population. Let's take a uh, moment right here to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk more about indigenous populations and their relationship to government. Stand by. All right, welcome back. So what begins to happen increasingly, and we, we saw this in the last chapters as well, is the formation of this proper Canadian government and the continue, continued squeezing of the population of the indigenous people. Um, and so when this happens, there are these constant interactions, many of them not very favorable, between uh, Canadians, the government, the Dominion, and the indigenous population. And I just uh, listed a few here, and then we have some pages that, I, that I'd like us to, to touch on in just a moment. But, um, you know, one of the things that happened uh, is as this, this modern, modern, quote unquote, society is being created, uh, the reservations, the reserves are sometimes left out of that mix. Or if they're included in that mix, they're included in a very half hearted attempt. You know, for example, so point three a, you know, you, you have these diseases, you have now essentially pushed native people onto these particular lands, but there are a lack of doctors and specialists to deal with the diseases at hand. Right? So you've identified problems, you even know how to solve the problems, but you don't have the doctors to, to attack those problems. Um, from the perspective of the government, also, there was increasingly this antagonism that built up. There, there was always a version of antagonism. Um, but the first couple chapters of this book really talks about how sort of circumstances um, that were sometimes unintentional, you know, created harms. And maybe, maybe even created harms for both sides when we're talking about disease. But increasingly... The Canadian government views indigenous people as problems to be dealt with. You know, they essentially dehumanize them. And so one of the quotes from the text is, is how the government viewed the indigenous. You can help them, you can feed them, or you can fight them. Uh, all of these examples uh, are taking away the agency, taking away the autonomy of the indigenous to provide for themselves. Help, feed, or fight. Either way, it, there's no expression of freedom or autonomy in the indigenous population. The John McDonald government acts of malevolence. Uh, to be malevolent is to be malicious, to do things with malice, to do things to intentionally harm. Now, I don't know if you noticed this or not, but on the cover of this book, this little red dot right there, if you look closely at that red dot, it says winner of the Sir John A. McDonald Prize. So John McDonald was the leader of the conservative government at the time. Um, he, did, he did not award this book the prize, 
but um, this was a prize given in his honor for the best work of of history. Uh, it's interesting, right? The book criticizes um, John McDonald and his foundation gives the prize to the book. Anyway, just wanted to point that out. Uh, the continued problem of the railway. Canada has this dream to build a railway from east to west. They accomplish it. But in order to accomplish that dream, they have to push people off the land. They have to move people around. Okay. The railroad was an incredibly disruptive force to the indigenous populations because it split land in half. Um, it made it very difficult to, to move cattle. And so all around the, the railroad would create incredible tensions between the indigenous populations and, uh, and the Canadian government, the dominion, as it were. Let's turn to page 110. I'm reading here from Indian agent James Stewart. Um, the Department of Indian Affairs was a government agency uh, directed by the Canadian government to investigate, help sort through, determine, understand, make sense of, uh, broadly speaking, uh, Indian affairs and all that, that, all that came with it. Page 110. I've never seen anything like it since my long residence in this country. It was not only the want of buffalo, but everything else seemed to have deserted the country. Even fish were scarce. The poor people were naked and the cold was intense and remained so during the whole winter. Under these circumstances, they behaved well and no raids were made on anything here. They ate many of their horses and all the dogs were destroyed for food. You know, this very much has the the reading, uh, the impression I get is like a, like an anthropologist, like, you know, studying their, uh, studying their object. And these are real people. And the conditions that these people are living under were created by the very people who are in some cases mocking them and running them down in other cases, feeling sorry for them. These are people that survived hundreds of years before Europeans arrived. And now are suffering by eating their dogs and eating their shoes. They have no clothing. They have no materials to make clothing. They're freezing to death. They're starving to death. And this observation makes it read like it is in, in some ways they're culpable for their condition. This next part I think is particularly infuriating. I think if you have any kind of heart at all, you'll find this to be particularly infuriating. And that is how indigenous people were dealt with once on the reserve. Okay. And what eventually happened was essentially a bartering system to earn food. And this is how it worked. You sign the latest treaty or you give up the land. And in return, you get food. You can survive for another day. I'm going to say that again. You sign the treaty, you get the food. In legal terms, we would call this a contract under duress. You're essentially putting a gun to someone's head, asking them to do something, knowing that they wouldn't otherwise do it. But because you're dangling their life in their hands, in this case, food is life or death. Because you're dangling their life in their hands, they will accept that treaty. So essentially what you created was a work for rations program. On page 116, it's described like this. Strict instructions have been given to the agents to require labor from able-bodied Indians for supplies given them. In other words, if you want the supplies, you have to work for them. This principle was laid down for the sake of the moral effect that it would have on the Indians, ensuring that they must give something in return for what they receive 
and also for the purpose of preventing them from hereafter expecting gratuitous assistance from the government. The very people that put the indigenous population in these conditions are now demanding that, that they act a certain way or do a certain thing to get the things they need to survive. It's wild, right? It's wild. In the, the native schools, uh, one of the things that they noticed about some of the, the mission of the native school is they, they were trying to educate indigenous populations to you know speak the, the, the language, whatever the language was, to write the, the right way, to dress a certain way and so on. And one of the observations from the teachers was, if nothing else these missions are doing is it's attracting people to school, to our mission, so they can eat. So under the cover of being fed, right? There's this other, you know, educational mission that's going on, uh, sometimes religious, sometimes not. But again, uh, the ulterior motive of, of that is, uh, is, is pretty unnerving, I think. Lastly, I want to talk about um, the sexual abuse and prostitution that occurred among the Department of Indian Affairs. You know, thus far, I think up until maybe the last two, three chapters um, so much of what befell native populations was really circumstantial. It, it was bad luck. Uh, now, of course, it was luck that it, that in part was, you know, it pushed upon indigenous people by these outsiders. Um, but we did not see the level of malevolence that we began to see um, in in the previous chapters and in these chapters. You know, the a working for rations program. Um, the in the previous chapter, the kidnapping of the the women and children in order to get trade partners. Okay, this, this is it's a wild circumstance. And on page one fifty three, we see what might be one of the most perverse parts of the entire text. I'm going to read a couple of paragraphs of this, but we're going to learn about how sexual abuse and prostitution played a role in how native people, especially women, primarily women. Young women at that were treated. Second paragraph on page 153. Persistent allegations of sexual predation. Predation is where you're preying on someone. Against both DIA, DIA employees at Frog Lake indicate that it was not a solitary occurrence. Archbishop Tache stated that the Dominion's wards were, quote, left a prey to the seductions of men revoltingly immoral. In Parliament, M.C. Cameron charged that the sexual exploitation of Indian women was so pervasive that 45% of, quote, one class of individuals in the Northwest had sexually transmitted diseases, an extraordinary showing for a class of men paid by the people of this country to control, manage, and set example to the Indians of the Northwest Territories. This is a huge scandal. I mean, this is just an absolutely enormous scandal. And... On top of that, right, beyond just it's the scandalous nature of it, there are real harms that can be done here, right? The spreading of disease, uh, the, the taking of someone's body without their consent. These are, these are really, really serious things on top of the political corruption of it, of it all. Cameron charged that girls as young as 13 were being sold to white men in the West, some for as little as $10. Government member Hector Langevin refused to accept that this constituted trafficking in young girls by asserting that to Indians, 
Marriage is, quote, simply a bargain and sale that the parents of a young woman are always on the alert to find a buyer for her. If there was any truth in this rebuttal, traditional bride price practices would have been severely strained by the horrendous conditions on reserves. Let me continue on, read maybe just one more paragraph. By the 1880s, the inadequate rations provided by the DIA had probably driven more women to prostitution simply to feed their families. So on top of being forced against your will to engage in sexual relationships, now we have women that feel as though this is their only choice, this is their only option, okay, to feed their families. In 1883, prostitution was considered a problem on reserves near Calgary. That year, the Cree chiefs at Edmonton petitioned the prime minister, quote, that their young women were now reduced by starvation and prostitution, a thing unheard of among their people before. In other words, this is something that just would have never happened pre-Columbian. Just would have never happened. There's, there's no knowledge of it happening for, and for any reason why it would happen this way. When the missionary Samuel Trivet exposed the sale of young blood women by their desperate parents to male settlers in Fort, Mac- in Fort McLeod, the McLeod Gazette defended the involvement of its readers in the practice, stating, There are scores of Indians on the reserve on which he is a missionary who practice the revolting and unnatural crime of peddling their women around the towns and settlements. So now perhaps the, they're blaming the indigenous themselves for the situation they find themselves in. A few more sentences. Contrary to S.W. Horrell's assertion that prostitution came to the Northwest Territories as sex workers moved west with the railway, prostitution among indigenous women was a survival strategy resulting from poverty experienced in their reserve communities after disappearance of the bison. In other words, it wasn't something that became a sort of tourist attraction where people came as the railways came and went. All right. It was indeed a strategy of survival, in this case, to give their bodies in order to be able to eat. I'm going to stop there for today. We're almost done with the text. Please make sure to, to read, go back, um, make notations. Uh, don't just depend on, you know, everything I say alone. Go back and, and read it yourself and find those interesting details and important um, components that will not only enhance your learning, but also uh, help you as you uh, begin to prepare for the quiz and then future tests. All right. See you soon.